Okay, I'm actually very proud of myself because I solved a Zoom technical issue all by myself. <laughs> I'm like, wow, I did it. Like I kept having trouble signing on to Zoom and then I figured it out. And I told my son-in-law who is an actual techie, like professionally, he's like, yeah, that's basically what we do at work. And I'm like, seriously? <laughs> Go me. Okay, so thank okay. God. Okay. Can you look again on um, Proverbs 426? 426, yeah? Yeah, chapter 4, verse 26. Yeah? And can you explain it to me? 426. Calculate the path of your foot and let all your ways be set firm. Yeah, in Hebrew, it's a little... Yeah, in Hebrew, it's a little confusing. Palais magal reglecha yeah it's about like when you need to stay on the path and when you need to step off the path in order to do the right thing okay hello Erin and Judy and Susan it's good to see everyone here today um we will have class next week but then after that we are off for passover for two weeks okay so i'll put it on our chat so you guys will be stay up to date all right so for now we are on hold on let me just mute you guys because there's noise coming from somewhere um we are on chapter 16 uh verse 7 okay and we have been talking about like, what are you responsible for, right? Are you responsible just for what you do? Are, are you responsible for what you think, right? And, and last time, uh, hey, Allison, last time we were talking about how what you think eventually leads to what you do. So while you're not responsible for everything that you think, but if you don't get a rein on what you think, eventually it'll come out in what you do, okay? So uh, we are on verse seven, which goes like this. Um, when a man's ways please Hashem, he makes even his enemies be at peace with him. So this is an interesting verse, and it's something that comes up a number of times in Judaism, which is about the relationship between how I get along with others and how God views me, okay? Hi, Tammy. Uh, actually, for those of you who grew up um, with a stronger religious tradition, or maybe you went to Jewish summer camp, in the Birkat HaMazon, there's a, there's a small part of it, even people who do the abridged version usually do this part, okay? Make some signal if you recognize this. Bamarom Yilamdu. Anyone? Anyone? Yeah, Debbie. We shall get, we shall get a blessing from God. And then at the end it says, We should have grace and good wisdom in the eyes of God and man. What that means is that it is important in the Jewish tradition, right, to, hi, Avril, to, to not just be good with God, but you also have to get along with people, right? You can't just be this isolationist, 
you know, and you're like, oh, who needs people? As long as I'm good with God, I'm fine. I don't care what anybody else thinks of me. God is proud of me. You know, some of these um, like early American writers, like, you know, Walt Whitman and, you know, the like, they, I don't know if Walt Whitman was actually part of this group, but many of them absolutely secluded themselves and they became actual hermits, right? And they were like, hey, Dana, you know, and they were like, we don't need other people. People are complicated. People are confusing. Society is corrupt. I'm going to stay here in this little place and isolate myself and write. That's all I'm going to do. Now, mind you, they still needed people, okay? Because somebody had to bring them food and somebody had to make this, you know, they needed somewhere to live. So you still need people, but the idea was that somehow it was more noble to isolate yourself from people. Now, besides the fact that this is absolutely not how Jewish people are, we, we are very, very community-minded, right? But also, this isn't what God wants from us. It's not more holy to isolate yourself. It's actually more holy to be able to get along with others, to be with other people and figure out how to make it work, right? Hello, Cindy and Jen. Nice to see you guys here. So that's the first part. You can't just say who needs people as long as I'm good with God. I don't care what anybody thinks of me. No, not cool. The second aspect that some people do is they're like, well, I'm not so into God. Like, whatever. That's not my thing. God is not my cup of tea. But I'm a really nice person. I have humanitarian values. Also, not enough. You can't just be good with God and not people. You can't be just good with people and not God. A complete Jewish experience will include both. And they hinge on each other, right? It's like, I, I just wrote this in my, in my book. Just wrote this a couple of days ago. In fact, I'm going to send you guys a little excerpt about this because I, I really like the way it came out. There's a teaching in Ethics of the Fathers, right? That it says, whomever the spirit of a person is good with other people, his spirit will also be good with God. But if, if your spirit is not good with other people, then it also will not be good with God. So it actually goes deeper than that. It's not just like you can't only have one and not the other. God actually says the way I view you is going to be dependent on how other people view you. Okay. Now that doesn't mean that, you know, you aren't going to have some people who don't like you. Everybody has some people who don't like you. It means in general, are you a likable, agreeable person who gets along with others? Right. And so the way I put it in my, in my little excerpt is that imagine that God has this big giant umbrella, right? And all of God's children are under his umbrella. Anybody who chooses to have a relationship with God is under God's umbrella and it's a safe place and it's a secure place, right? Now, who else is under God's umbrella? All of God's other children who have sought to be under God's umbrella. So let's say you say, you know what, God, I really like you and I really like your umbrella, but these people, they're all annoying. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to step out from under the umbrella and I'm going to separate myself from this umbrella because I'm good with you, God, but these people, they're not my jam. So God says, listen, honey, I hate to break it to you, but if you step out from the umbrella, you're also stepping out from my protective shade. Being under my protective shade means you have to deal with these annoying people. That's part of being under my umbrella. You cannot have it both ways. So in, in the ethics of the fathers, God says, you want to know how to know if I like you, if basically people like you, if basically people like you, I like you too. If you can get along with my children, then you get along with me. You can't get along with my children, 
then you can't get along with me. Okay. Welcome, Julie. It's nice to have you here. So here too, in our verse, number seven, it's the same thing. When a person's ways please Hashem, he makes even his enemies be at peace with him. This means that if you can figure out a way to get along with God, so really, right, it goes both ways. If you can figure out a way to get along with God, you will get along better with other people. But it means to really get along with God, like to do all the things that God wants you to do, right? It's not just about being more pious and only caring about your relationship with God, but also caring about your relationship with other people. That will make you more likable. Other people will sense about you that there's something more noble and more refined in your personality and in your character, right? And then they'll say, gosh, you know, I'm not really sure if God is my jam, but I like that person's vibe. There is something, you know, cool about that person's vibe. You know, I have to tell you, I have had this experience in seeing the writings um, or speeches of people of other faiths. You know, even if I disagree with their faith, right? Maybe there's a Buddhist person or a Christian person. There are certainly, you know, basic tenets of their faith that I don't agree with, but I would still say to myself, you know what, but I like that person's vibe and I can be inspired by that person. Even if their faith is not mine, you know, even if they have no faith, I can still say to myself, there's still something noble about that person. So what, how do we apply this? How do we do this? Okay. So let's look at the commentary. The Almighty is pleased by those who are steadfast in their wholehearted way toward him so that no foreign impulse or desire arises in them. So this is a person who says, you know what, God, I am staying with you for the long haul, right? And even if stuff comes up in my life where I don't know where you are and I don't know where you're hiding and I don't understand how you run your world, God, but I'm, I'm still your person. I'm still hanging on to this relationship. When a person does that, right, God is so pleased with that person. That's the first half of the verse. When a person's ways please God, God is proud of that person, right? It's like God is saying to us, I'm, I'm so proud of you for staying strong, even when it's hard. Then the commentary continues. He is steadfast and constant in granting them his favor. So here you have this word, um, this, this, this idea of grace, that God will give this person a certain degree of likability, right? So it's like a gift. Hashem grants, him his, grants them his favor. Hashem says, listen, you are loyal to me. I'm loyal to you. I'm going to stay with you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help things work out for you. I want life to work out for you. Since they have achieved peace, with the inner enemies of sinful urges, right? We all have that inner enemy, the enemy within. We call it the Yetzirah. That's that negative drive within us that wants us to do things that are wrong, right? And we've we've shown Hashem, right, that we are making we're making peace with our inner enemies. We're saying, listen, we're not fighting anymore. This is how I do things. I'm not going to listen to you. I'm not. I don't want to be in a fight all the time. So Hashem says, you've made peace with your inner enemies. I am going to make sure that you have peace with your external enemies. And he rewards them by giving them peace with any external physical enemies they may have. That people do 
tend to recognize that this is a person that has value and this is a person that's worth admiring. And this is not a person that I want to fight with. But there's also something metaphysical going on here. It's not just like a natural cause and effect. It's also God saying, I will make this special result happen for you. That if you try your best to stay good with me, I will make it that people will like you. So we see that there's this sort of circular relationship. If you refuse to get along with others, God will say, well, then you can't get along with me. But if you insist on getting along with God, God will help you to get along with others, right? And then in, in our uh, Birkat Amazon, we pray to God to have good grace, grace and good intellect in the eyes of God and man. So what's important to remember here is that if you really try to stay strong with God, to stay good in your relationship with God, God will help you get along with others. And also, it's not good enough to just say, I only care about getting along with God and I don't care about getting along with others. Nor is it enough to say, I only care about getting along. along with others and I don't care. Okay. Any thoughts or comments on verse seven? I also want to point out that the, the two tablets that we got at Mount Sinai, the first tablet is mostly about our relationship to God. It's about believing in God, about not having other gods, about not taking God's name in vain. Shabbat right? And the second half is all about our relationships with other people. Don't kill, don't steal, don't be unfaithful in your marriage. And it, these two tablets are there in order to show that it's, it's two aspects of life, your relationship with God and your relationship with people, but it's one message. It's the same thing. In fact, when I was just writing about this in my book, so I wanted to find the source for where it says that the two tablets carried one message. So I Googled two tablets, one message, and all the results that came up were about iPads and how to get your messages, your iMessages on your iPad. So I was like, oh, I, maybe I should have capitalized tablets. <laughs> but even then, I don't think it would have worked. I, I've had some of these funny Google fails in writing this book. It's a very, been a very interesting journey. Um, but anyways, the point is that the two tablets, even though it seems like they each represented a different aspect, they were one and they were given at the same time to say that the complete experience in Judaism will include working on our relationship with God and working on our relationship with people. They're not divisible. Okay. Any other thoughts? Could you also, sorry, my dog keeps like moving my hand away as I'm trying to move. Um, could you also add in there your relationship with yourself as the third? Yeah. So it's interesting. That's not part of the tablets, but it is definitely one of the aspects of relationships in Judaism. It comes up in other places. I can't think of it off the top of my head, but definitely that there are three relationships. There's our relationship to God, our relationship to others, and our relationship with ourself. And they're all interconnected. You know, like I was just talking about this to my daughter last night. I was reading a book, um, Brene Brown, Atlas of the Heart, which I've, I've mentioned several times. Um, and, and in the book, she was talking about how very often insecurity becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, 
and, and my daughter asked me, and I was really excited about it. And I took a picture of it and I posted it on Instagram and she's like, I don't understand what is it saying? I said, well, what is saying is that if a person doesn't like themselves, they will often act in ways that make them less likable because they like demand attention and, you know, inordinately and they'll, they're not going to be as likely to be able to laugh off something because they take things very personally and they're, they would tend to overthink things. So she's like, oh my gosh, yeah, that's really true. So if a person doesn't like themselves, it's going to be harder for them to like people, right? And if a person is having a negative experience in their relationship to God, sorry, in their relationship to other people, let's say somebody's in a really abusive marriage, God forbid, they're also going to have a hard time in their relationship with God because they're going to say, well, how could this happen to me? How could this person do this to me? Or God, how could you put me in this vulnerable position? Or they may start to believe about themselves that they're unlovable. And that's going to translate into their relationship to themselves. So really all of them are interconnected, but definitely your relationship to yourself is, is in a way like the basis of everything. Thank you. Okay. Anything else before we move on to number eight? Okay, number eight. Uh, no, we just did that one. Okay, tov ma'at bitzdaka. Better is a little with righteousness, may rov tvuot below mishpat, than great revenues with injustice. Okay, this is a very powerful verse. It's better to have a little, but you earned it honestly, than to have a lot that came your way lawlessly. Now I have to say in our society, being successful financially is highly, highly prized. From the time a child is little, we wanna put them in the right preschool so they can start developing their mind, so they can go to school and they can get good grades so they can go to a good high school and get more good grades and volunteer and get a good resume so they can go to a good college, so they can get a good education, so they can go to a master's program, so they can get a good job. So that what? So that what? So that they can be successful. Successful in America is a euphemism for wealthy. That is not what Judaism considers successful. Of course, Judaism is a fan of a person making an honest living and trying their hardest to support their family and to have enough to share with those who have less and to support community causes, that's beautiful. But money has never been a goal unto itself. Success is about how do you use your money, whether you have a lot or a little. Because very often, whether you have a lot or a little does not actually depend on you. It could depend on, it depends on Hashem. A person could have a great degree. A person could have a high IQ and find it really difficult to make a living depending on a hundred different factors. So what we're trying to say here is it's not about how much you have. It's about what this verse is saying. It's about how did you get to what you have? And I'm also saying it's about what you do with what you have. You know, you could look at a person and say, wow, see that guy over there? Whew, that guy's really successful. Really? Wow. That's so cool. Yeah. I mean, he's got like two boats. Are you kidding? Two boats? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, totally. And like a house in the Alps. What? 
That is so cool. Okay. Now here's what I'm more interested in. Not, not that I would ask because it's gossipy, but how did he get there? Did he get there by stepping on other people? Did he get there because he was a trust fund baby? Did he get there by being a workaholic? Did he get there by being shrewd and rude? That's far more interesting to me. You know what else is far more interesting to me? What does this guy do with all of his properties and his boats? Is it just for him and his fancy friends? Is there any philanthropy there? Is there sharing and caring going on? That's a far more valuable statement of character than how much a person has. So this verse is concerned with the means by which that person achieved that success, telling us that it's far more admirable to have little, which our society will rarely respect that person, right? Well, we're, hey, you see that guy who lives in that little house? Yeah, he made every penny, honestly. Seriously? Wow. That is so cool. You just don't hear that regularly, right? That's not what we're impressed with. Well, we should be, is what this verse is saying. Here's the commentary. The modest possession of a tzaddik, a righteous person, are under divine protection and will endure. Right? What he's saying here is that if you earned it honestly and carefully, Hashem is telling you that it will last. It's not going to be here today and gone tomorrow because Hashem is proud of how you, how you got there. All the great profits and possessions that are acquired unjustly, however, will, will be ultimately lost. This is something that we talked about many times, right? That you'll see a person succeeding that is not a good person, an unsavory person, a, a person who does not live with good morals or values, you know, and it can be very disheartening to see that, you know, when you see these people like riding the train to success and you know that they've gotten that way by being cruel and ruthless. It's so disturbing, you know, whereas other people, you know, they always say the nice guy finishes last. It's really hard not to get discouraged by that. But over and over again, King Solomon says, just wait. The story is not over yet. The person who plods along, you know, slow and steady wins the race. The person who plods along and does the right thing little by little and puts one foot in front of the other, that person will eventually reach, reach lasting success. Again, how are you defining success? But the person who, you know, gets there illegally or unethically, don't worry, because that's a house of cards and that is going to fall one day. So just relax, right? And just remember that there is a God who runs the world and there is justice and good things will come to those who wait. Do you guys remember that Heinz ketchup commercial? Good things come to those who wait. This was old, old commercial. This guy is standing at the top. They're trying to show you how thick Heinz ketchup is. This guy is standing at the top of a building and he puts this bottle of Heinz ketchup and it says, good things come to those who wait. The bottle is like this. And the guy runs all the way down all the floors of the building and he gets to the bottom of the building and he opens his mouth and drop. That's how long it takes takes for the ketchup to drop out of the bottle because it's so thick. Now, this commercial has stayed in my mind for 40 years. Good things come to those who wait. Good, good. Uh, I'll have to see if I can find it on YouTube. Wouldn't that be funny? Um, yeah, the power of advertising. It's actually scary. Um, so good things come to those who wait. And I want to 
you know, just, I remember when I first started blogging and someone said to me, um, if you just keep putting out good content, just keep putting it like steadily, it, it, your blog will be successful. It doesn't have to be fast. It doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be splashy. Every day you show up and do the right thing, good things will happen. And this is so true of relationships too. I feel like so often relationships can be defined by like the big moments. It's a birthday. It's an anniversary. It's a milestone. It's a graduation, you know, and we make these grand gestures. That's not actually what is going to add up to the sum total of a relationship. Far more important in a relationship are the small, good things you do all the time with steadfastness and with consistency and with longevity, right? That, you know, my kids will remember that I was always up to see them off to school and that unless I told them otherwise, I was there when they got home from school. That's really important. Reliability, you know, um, consistency. That's what really matters in a relationship. There's no shortcut to that. So a person who shows up every day and does the right thing, Hashem will remember, that's who you are. You're loyal, you're steadfast, you're consistent. Don't worry about all these people who are shortcutting their way to success. That is not gonna last. In fact, nothing fast really lasts. That rhymes, cute. Nothing fast really, you know, you know people say, oh, get rich quick scheme, or here's how to lose 50 pounds in one afternoon, you know, all of that stuff. If someone is promising you fast results, it's probably not real. That's just not how growth happens. So put one foot in front of the other, you keep doing the right thing, and Hashem will make sure that your results endure. Okay, thoughts or comments on number eight? Okay, we have a quiet group today. <laughs> Number nine. Number nine. Lev Adam A person's heart calculates his way. But Hashem directs his steps. This is an interesting verse about the relationship between free will and determinism. When I wake up in the morning, what dictates what I will do with my day? Me, my decisions, my choices, or fatalism, right? Well, what did God decide was going to happen to me today? How much of it is me and how much of it is God? And this is important because I can only be held accountable for my choices. I can't be held accountable for what God compels me to do. So which part of it is me and which part of it is God, right? The verse again, a person's heart calculates his way, but Hashem directs his steps. In fact, this verse that Hashem directs his steps, is say, Hashem yachin these are the exact same words that appear in one of the morning blessings that's in our prayer book. We say, blessed are you God, sovereign of the universe, who prepares the footsteps of mankind. That means that God sort of like, nudges us in a certain direction for where our steps will go. Okay, so then if I was nudged in a certain direction, so then am I really responsible? How much did God poke me in the ribs and how much of it was really me? So here's what Malbum says. Even though a person has free will, 
to decide on his course of action, it still remains in heaven's power to let him carry out his projects, actually take the physical steps along the route he had planned, or to prevent him, right? Meaning, let's say God decides that he doesn't want me to do what I was about to do today. So maybe he'll make me wake up feeling sick. And I'll be like, oh, I have to call in sick today. I'm not feeling well, forget it. And all my plans are canceled for today. Or maybe I'm driving down the road and my car runs out of gas, or I need an oil change, or I don't know, a hundred other things that could happen, right? So God has the power to intervene in my plans, just as felicitous oral expression is a divine gift, which we talked about in verse one, right? That before we say something, we should pray that the words should come out of our mouth appropriately. So too, so do physical movement and achievement depend on his will right? Did you ever try to do something and you just felt like it was being thwarted over and over again? Like you're trying to send an email and then your computer crashes and then your phone dies and then there's an error message and then the email bounces back and you're like, is Hashem trying to tell me something? <laughs> you know, this just, just happened to my husband the other day. Um, I'm trying to remember what it was that happened. I can't remember the details, but he was also like, Hashem trying to tell me something because it feels like he's trying to tell me something, right? So Hashem can thwart your plans if he so chooses to do so. In the transitive, the Hebrew for calculates denotes peculiar improper plans, hence the Almighty impedes him. Now here's the thing. Really God tries his hardest, so to speak, to not interfere with our free will, right? God wants us to be able to utilize our free will so that our choices have meaning, so that our lives have meaning. If God is going to step in and micromanage everything about us, then what meaning does our life have, right? It's like sometimes, you know, um, you'll give a kid a, a present, a little kid, you know, it's a birthday or party or something. And before they even get a chance to open their mouth, your mother says, did you say thank you? <laughs> like, hold up, give the kid a minute to see if he's going to say thank you, right? You like put a muzzle on his free will because you jumped in there and intervened. Don't jump in there and intervene. So much of the time, God does not want to jump in and intervene. God wants to give us true free will so that we can live meaningful lives. But if we want to, and this is what we're talking about here, peculiar improper plans, something that you want to do that is not right, then sometimes God will protect either you or the victim or both by jumping in and preventing it from happening. So if you see a number of times that something you're trying to do isn't working, just stop and ask yourself, could this be a message? Maybe this is something I shouldn't do. Maybe this is something I should reconsider. Maybe this is something I should postpone until tomorrow and give it some more thought. Actually, God wouldn't intervene unless he really cared about us because he, he knows that we don't really want to do that or he, he knows that it's not really the right thing. So he's helping us out by sort of nudging us in a particular direction so that we can stop and ask ourselves, hey, wait, this is really what I want to do, right? And then it gives us a moment to recalibrate and say, no, 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 this is not me. This, this is a message. God, I hear you loud and clear. And now I know what to do. So overall, overall, we have free will. And then on occasion, God will intervene and help us 
whether because we don't really deserve to do that thing or the other person really doesn't deserve to get that thing. Okay. Any thoughts or comments about that? Um, and sometimes, right, it's just because it's not good for us. Yeah. Right. I was um, speaking at Lashon Hora on, my, on the phone one time um, about a, a teacher. And I hit like a certain spot and like the call dropped. <laughs> and I was like, wow. and then I called my friend back. And we both were like, we totally should not be discussing this. <laughs> but it was like totally it was like Hashem just being like no 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 Heather <laughs> like, you're so holy that Hashem is on your phone call <laughs> yes he was <laughs> I love that Mes- message received <laughs> I love that but see you know what's interesting is Hashem isn't going to give a message to someone who has no chance of receiving it so your your mm-hmm. eyes and ears were open to it you were you were ready to receive you know I was feeling appropriate guilt. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. That's a great example. Thank you. You know, I think in general, sometimes in life, we try to force solutions. We try to like make things happen. Like I really want, you know, these two people to meet each other, or I really want these two people to not meet each other, you know, or I really want to get this job, or I really don't want to be in this job, you know, and it sometimes just seems like the universe keeps conspiring against us, you know, and, you know, we just got to keep like, you know, you, like you were saying, Heather, we got to keep our eyes and ears open. I don't know. Maybe something bigger is happening here in this situation. Also, I remember learning that like when you're trying to level up, um, there will be challenges like along the way to like, like make it even more worth it when you overcome yeah. that challenge. Yeah, um, that's beautiful. Oh, I wanted to mention, I'm sorry, I didn't mention this at the beginning. Today, we're studying in the merit of Ari Benchana, Sherry Goldberg's dad. He's in the hospital. Uh, and unfortunately, he's not doing well. So we're studying in the merit of him to have healing and recovery. Okay. Any other thoughts on number nine? All righty. Number 10. Kesem al Melech, a magic rests on the lips of the king let his mouth not betray him in judgment this is so interesting you know the the whole concept of magic has gotten so much attention with the advent of harry potter you know i feel like when i was a kid if you talked about magic you would think about a, a magician a guy who came and did like a magic show you know, now there's like Magic the Gathering and, you know, Harry Potter and people, you know, just think of it differently. But what does this mean that magic rests on the lips of the king? Let his mouth not betray him in judgment. Okay. So we're talking about a king here. We're talking about a king of Israel, a Jewish king. Now, a Jewish king, so King Solomon, who wrote this book, right? He's talking about himself. And his father, King David, who was the first true king of Israel, uh, King Saul actually came before him, but he was more like a pre-king. But in any case, the king was meant to be a representation of God's glory. 
So a king could not get obsessed with his own power like a modern day king, but rather he understood that he was a humble representation of the glory of Hashem. In fact, a king had more rules than a regular mortal. You know, unlike in our understanding of a king, the king is, you know, exempted from certain things. The king doesn't have to, the king can do whatever he wants. He's the king. The opposite is true of the king of Israel. He was limited in certain excesses and indulgences. He was supposed to wear a Torah scroll attached to his person all the time in order to remind him of his responsibility to be humble and true to the, to the ethics of the Torah. So what is he saying? King Solomon here is talking about the responsibility of a king that magic rests on his lips. Okay. So the commentary explains that whatever issues from the lips of a king, even in superficial talk, is regarded as magic or wizardry. What that means is that it's like it's like inspired by Hashem. That his his and unfortunately, as Jewish history went on, King Solomon was at the absolute climax of the Jewish experience. When all the Jews were living in Israel, it was an era of incredible peace. There was financial security. There was incredible Torah knowledge. It was a beautiful utopian time for the Jewish people. Unfortunately, it kind of went downhill from there. Uh, And after that, there were many kings who were corrupted. There were kings who instituted idolatry all over the land of Israel, like really some pretty dark times. Um, For any of you who have learned through the books of prophets, you know, it's actually pretty depressing when you learn about, you know, the King Solomon, that was the golden era. And after that, they took a nosedive. Um, But what he was saying is that a king who is a true king, right, who is living that representation of Hashem's values in the world and showing people what a truly evolved Jew looks like. So if he said something, it was like godly inspired, right? And it had this sort of magic to it. Conclusions and decisions are derived from his words. If he says something, that was the law. That was the rule, right? So he had this incredible magic, sort of like this divine assistance to what he said. Hence, he must speak clearly and truly. His mouth must never betray him. So what does that mean? Not that, oh, he's at the top of the world. He can say whatever he wants. The opposite is true. He has to be twice as careful with everything he says. He has to be twice as mindful not to let the wrong thing come out of his mouth. By contrast, if you guys remember from listening to the Purim story, for those of you who are able to go and hear the Megillah, right? And the king, he would make these like impulsive laws whenever he wanted. Oh, my wife wouldn't come out and dance in front of everybody. Okay, never mind. She's gone. You know, okay, here's a new rule. Hey, king, can I kill all the Jews? Yeah, totally. You can kill all the Jews. Here, take my ring, you know, let it. And then he's like, no, never mind. I didn't want to kill my wife. Whoops, I feel bad about that. Okay, never mind. I'm going to make a beauty pageant. I'm going to have all these other women come to my palace and audition for the part of the queen, you know? And then impulsively, he decides that Haman should die and everything. It's like, it's the opposite of this, like, kind of heavy understanding of your power and of your ability to influence others, a true leader will be overwhelmed by humbleness to lead more greatly as opposed to become intoxicated by his own power to do whatever in the world he wants. True leadership always comes hand in hand with humility in Judaism. If you look at Moses, the greatest leader who ever lived, right? 
The Torah says about him, Vayigdal, he became great. The Torah actually says that about him twice in the Torah. At the very end of the Torah, it says that Moses was the greatest prophet who ever lived. Lo kumbi Yisrael kemoshen. No prophet ever arose like Moses. And the Torah also says that Moses was the most humble person who ever lived. Baha'ish Moshe anav ma'od. He was the most humble person who ever lived. Those two things must exist simultaneously in order to produce great leadership. Greatness, the ability to lead, the wisdom to lead, coupled with the humbleness and the understanding of the responsibility that comes with the office, instead of making it all about you and becoming intoxicated with your own power. This is why power corrupts, because people do not have humbleness. So that's what this saying is too. If a king would really understand the power that his words have, he would be 10 times as careful with what comes out of his mouth. Okay, what's the message for us? None of us are kings. The answer is this. If you have any degree of clout in your life, whether it's with your kids, whether it's with your friends, whether it's in your community, in your family, at work, anywhere, any degree of power where when you say something, uh, other people pay attention, then you better understand the humbleness with which you must approach that task. That you have to be careful, be careful what comes out of your mouth because people are listening, people are paying attention and people are acting in certain ways based on the things that you do. I sometimes get overwhelmed when I record these classes and I'm like, these words are being immortalized forever. That's freaky. It's sometimes, I'm not kidding you, it sometimes keeps me up at night. What if I made a mistake? What if I said something wrong? What if I said something misleading? What if people misunderstood what I said or misapplied it? You know, and that's why when I pray, I pray to Hashem to put the right words in my mouth. Like we said back in verse one, I pray to Hashem to give me wisdom. I pray to Hashem to keep me humble so that the words that I say, right, this is the end of the verse, um, that let my mouth not betray me in judgment. Please give me the ability to say the right thing. You know, and this is true, no matter where a person is during the day, in life, in work, in family, that we should pray for this kind of reverence for how our words are going to impact others. Okay, thoughts or comments on number 10? When you were talking about magic, I remember Barry Feld um, taught us that, um, like not to even say like abracadabra because it comes from, I think an Aramaic word or something like abracadabra or something. Yeah, it comes from the Aramaic words, abracadabra, I shall create what I speak. Yeah, yeah, it's I interesting. I never heard, though, not to say those words. That's very interesting. Well, like, just that words are so powerful. So like, yeah. whatever you're going to have after that, you know, like, I turn you into a frog, you know, or something. <laughs> probably you shouldn't do that. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> interesting. I mean, people say all kinds of things in jest, and they say all kinds of things, you know, thoughtlessly. And it's like, I mean, on the one hand, you have to just be normal, you know, and be able to just kind of speak naturally. But on the other hand, there should be a certain degree of trepidation with what's about to come out of our mouths. Okay. Any other final closing thoughts or comments or questions? So 
Uh, I see that two words keep repeating and I cheated and looked a couple ahead and see them again. Um, roots of various tzedek, tzedakah, mishpat keeps coming up. Is there a reason why, and we're not always translating them the same, but um, I'm curious about this because I just happen to have parsed um, tzedek, tzedek, tear dope. So I'm like focused on, on yeah. the, the, it's like, the Eskimos have whatever number of words for snow. We have a million words for justice. But the fact that Mishpat keeps coming up, which would use, like, would sort of imply the legal, legal justice, no? So, you know, it's interesting because these Hebrew words are so loaded with meaning that sometimes we need multiple English words to explain them. Like, Sedek is often translated as justice, but tzedakah is translated as charity. In a way, you could even say that those two concepts are opposites. Justice is everybody gets exactly what they deserve. Charity seems to be where a person gets more than they deserve. So the way, the way we understand this is that actually charity, see, here's the problem. The language of Judaism in English is usually the language of Christianity. Charity is a Christian word. It's not a, a Jewish word. We translate it that way because it's the best we've got. But really, you know what tzedakah is? Tzedakah is really justice. Tzedakah is everybody getting exactly what they deserve. Why? Because God said that everybody should tithe. And therefore, that 10% doesn't belong to me. Giving it to someone else is just restoring justice. It's not charitability. It's justice, it's righteousness. You know, so the reason why certain Hebrew words might be translated differently in different places is because of the context and how that word is being used. That's why as often as possible, I try to point out the Hebrew and explain where, where that Hebrew word is used in other places, because that's gonna show us what it really means. You know, and the truth is it's, it's a little unfortunate because I'm teaching Torah, right? English is my first language. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm very comfortable with Hebrew, but most of the people that I teach um, are not familiar with Hebrew much at all, just a smattering. Or, or if they are comfortable with Hebrew, it's more in like the way Hebrew is used in modern Israel, not necessarily in biblical Hebrew. So, you know, the reason certain words are used, it's almost like you kind of have to learn Hebrew alongside it because English is just so limited in its expression of spiritual concepts. And what we do have comes to us via Christianity, you know, penance and absolution and prayer. These are all Christian words. Some of them are useful. Some of them are less useful. So I was um, <clears throat> giving that quote, Tzedek, Tzedek, Tirdaf, to somebody who's not even Jewish. And uh, so I was trying to explain it, um, that they work in the justice field. So, yeah. um, so I was diving into it and trying to read commentary on it and all this sort of thing. Um, and um, the, the, I read about the, that the concept of Staka, Tzedek, justice, is it, it is mercy combined with justice, not just either one alone. So 
like you were saying, there's charity and there's justice, but but this is a concept that connotes both. Mm-hmm. So one thing I read was an example where like if a poor man gives you his coat as um, a, a security deposit, you have to give it to him back before sunsets if it's yeah. cold and it's his only coat so he can sleep in it and not be cold. And so legally he gave it to you. That was the security deposit, but, but mercy requires that you lend it. Yeah. Back yeah. yeah. That's such a great example. And that's so Jewish. That's just so iconically Jewish, you know, what you just said. So it's a great point. I'm glad you brought it up. Uh, Heather, were you going to say something before we close? No, I was, when you were just talking about Christian words, I was thinking like sin and, you know, sinner. Yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. I like telling my clients who feel like they left their religion because of words like that. And then to say like, oh, like in our language, it just translates to miss the mark. Uh-huh. Right? Like, is that yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, the word hate means to miss the mark, to yeah. just miss the target. Yeah. Yeah. A mistake. Really, that's what it is. A mistake, right? That's a far more benevolent word than sin. Sin feels like an irreparable stain that will never come out. True. True. Okay. Thanks, Thanks, everybody. Great being with you today. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. May complete recovery. Um, And I will see you guys back here next week. God willing. Oh, wait, one more thing. Sorry. Yeah. If I'm sponsoring Kiddush for this Shabbat, so for people who are in town, um, come hear Rahi speak at 11.15. When um, my talk is at 11, and we actually have oh, a right. speaker this weekend, Rabbi Shlomo Buxbaum, and he's speaking also on Shabbat morning at 10.30. Woo. So, so come and come for services, come for the talk, yeah, come for come Kiddush. Come for everything. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Thanks, Thank Heather. Bye bye. Your father's Neshama should have an Aliyah. Should have an Amen. Aliyah. Amen. Yeah. Okay. Bye, guys.